Hebrews 7:23 to 28. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we'll see this morning, we come to you, yes, as individuals, but also as a people, uh, in Christ. And because we are in Christ, we can come to you this morning, needy and broken and weak and tired, and you hear us. You're with us. You fill us. Lord, would we not with the distractions of our heart and where our mind races off to, would we not miss the good news you have for us this morning in your word? Would you give us eyes to see by your spirit, ears to hear by your spirit, the good news of the priestly ministry of your son Jesus? We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, this morning, obviously, we're continuing in our Advent series that we're calling The Turning Point of History. And we're looking at Jesus, our priest. Each week looking at one of these Old Testament offices, prophet, priest, and king. These offices that were anointed. These people were set apart for a special task in Israel among God's people. And we see in Jesus the fulfillment of each of these offices. Indeed, he fulfills these offices so well that we can say that Jesus and his incarnation is the turning point of history. That everything changes when King Jesus comes. Everything changes when the prophet Jesus comes. Everything changes, as we'll see today, when the great high priest Jesus comes. And if we're being honest, the the title of priest amongst the three, of prophet, priest, and king, the, the title of priest is probably, I mean, they're all kind of strange in some way, maybe not king, but certainly prophet and priest. And priest, I think, among them is probably the strangest. We probably have as many images of a priest in our head as there are people here. The language evokes different things. When I, had a, uh, uh, when I was growing up, I had friends who were Catholics. And we lived across the street from a Catholic school. And I thought, why don't I just go to that school? My parents told me, don't go to that school because we're not Catholics. I said, oh, okay. But I heard at that school that they had priests. I had, no, I had known about pastors. And, and I'd seen a pastor before, and they seemed like normal people. But, but these priests at, at my friend's school, uh, they seem to be like pastors except with like superpowers. Like, 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 you know, like really good, like serious pa- pastors. So that was my image of priests growing up. Uh, culturally, we have, a, I think, a strange and a strange relationship with priests. Uh, the word itself is able to evoke any number of images. For some of us, it evokes this image uh, of an ancient shaman trying to gain the attention and favor of the gods through, through ritual and, and sacrifice. 
others, it invokes the very real ongoing tragedies of abuse that have occurred at the hands of priests and those like them. Or our culture doesn't think of priests at all. Or we don't talk about them at all. Thinking them to be irrelevant and and outdated. In fact, the only time you heard the word priest in the last year was, was just right now, because I said it. Yet our focus this morning is on Jesus, our priest. Our priest. What does it mean that Jesus is our high priest? And how is that relevant to us today? The Bible's unapologetic claim is that you and I need a priest. That you and I need a priest. And in case you don't know what a priest does, I have it on the screen behind me. A priest is anyone, someone, a person who acts as a mediator between God and humanity. Between God and and humanity. A a go-between, if you will. And so, if we can for a moment, put away these images of a priest as an ancient shaman yelling in the wind. And and put away images of a priest as a magically endowed super pastor. Instead, think with me of a priest uh, like a famous famous powerful uh, politician bringing two warring parties to the table. You know, a few years ago, I was in uh, North Korea. Not South, North Korea. And and I went to the demilitarized zone uh, where there's the most weapons uh, in in all the world. It's the most heavily militarized area in in the entire world. And in the middle of the DMZ, the demilitarized zone, is these group of houses called Conference Row. And 50% of the house is on the North Korea side, and, and 50% of the house is on the South Korea side. And, and when they come together to make agreements, uh, North Korea obviously enters from the North Korean side, and South Korea enters from the, the, the South Korean side, and, and there they talk, and th- there they meet. It's fascinating to see. We can think of Jesus and his priestly ministry as bringing the two sides to the table. He's standing between two warring parties and he's inviting one and he's inviting the other to the table. He's saying, come, let us sit down, let us hammer out a peace agreement, a covenant. The underlying assumption in all of this, in all of this, is that all is not well between humanity and God. That we are in need of a sit down, a peace agreement. That there is a distance between us in need of bridging. And the good news, the good news I want us to enjoy this morning is how Jesus has once and for all bridged that gap. In fact, how Jesus continues to bridge that gap today. See, if the good news uh, two weeks ago when we looked at King Jesus was that God ruled, and the good news last week when we looked at Jesus the prophet was that God speaks, the good news this week as we look at Jesus, our, our great high priest, is that in Jesus, God is near. He's near. And as I say that, that God is near, I know for many of you, you don't believe me. Sounds strange. To unpack this then, I want to uh, talk about this good news in three headings. Three headings, really simply. Jesus brings God near to us. Jesus brings us near to God. And then thirdly and finally, how this changes everything. Jesus brings God near to us. Jesus brings us near to God and how this changes everything. So first, the first piece of good news this morning. Jesus brings God near to us. Now to understand this, 
I know it's not Monday, you're not in school anymore, but we have to do a little bit of a history uh, lesson. A, a brief one, I promise. In the first pages of the Bible, you don't have to turn there, but in the first pages of the Bible, we read about God's intimate relationship with his people. He, he's near them. They are walking together, enjoying one another. It, it, it is as close as, as close could be, thick as thieves, except in a good way, if, if you can think of it like that. And when it comes to God's relationship with humanity, we see in Genesis 3, things begin to decline, to put it mildly. Things take a turn uh, for the worse. Because of our rebellion, we read in the Bible, man is cast out of the garden, out of Eden, and is separated from God's presence. There is a need to be near to God in the very first pages of the Bible. Our enjoyment of him was, was fleeting and, and momentary. In, in Genesis 12, though, we see that God is proactive in this. That he, he cares about being near to his people. And we see God make a covenant with Abraham. God makes his covenant with Abraham, and he promises a, a lot of things to him. But one of the things that he promises to Abraham is that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. That from Abraham will come this, this, these children, these people, who will worship God. These people who will be a light to the nations. Eventually, this happens, but Israel finds itself in Egyptian slavery. And I want to see this morning if I can do the whole Exodus story in 10 seconds. Ready? Here it is. Slavery, Moses, let my people go. Plagues, let my people go. Israel's free, woohoo, they did it. Uh, Red Sea crossing, parting waters, and wilderness. That's the whole Exodus narrative. And it's in the wilderness that I want us to focus this morning. Because in the wilderness, God encounters his people. He draws near to his people in a profound way. In a profound way. See, in the wilderness, God singles out Israel. Listen to this language. It's in your Bibles. It's amazing. God singles out Israel as his personal treasure. His personal treasure. Hand-picked people, descendants of Abraham from among all the peoples of the earth. And, And the best part... Hear this, Christ City, of being God's personal treasure is being near to God. The best part, it's true today, of being God's personal treasure is being near to God. And so you can read this in Exodus 19. Moses, it said, brought the people out of the camp to meet God. Can you imagine that meeting? I was nervous when I was meeting uh, my wife's father. Like, But it's more than that. This is not the, the, the kind of meeting between, you know, like, like a, a protective father and a potential, you know, boyfriend. Right? There, there's no, like, the worst thing that happens is, like, a tough question. Or, like, I embarrass myself. Right? We read in Exodus this. Uh, Israel comes out. They come out to a mountain. And what do we find at that mountain? Smoke and fire. This wasn't at my meeting with, with my wife's dad. Smoke and fire and earthquakes and, and what else? Uh, a loud trumpet sound from heaven. We'll read in just a bit. The darkness is so dark, it's like thick. It's fear. It's palpable. And so not surprisingly, I love what Israel does at this point in the story. They push Moses forward and say, you talk to him. You do it. Read this with me in, in Exodus 20, verses 18 to 21. 
Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid, obviously. I'm afraid reading it and trembled. And they stood far off. Notice that language. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. So the people, again, notice this repetition. Don't miss this, Christ City. The people, they stood far off. They stood far off. While Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Like There's real wisdom here from Israel. Full of, of sin and rebellion ungratefulness. Only a few chapters earlier, Israel was complaining about the, the bread that God sent them from heaven. This isn't the bread I ordered, God. Right? This is, has gluten in it. Right? It's not good for me. Uh, who are they to stand before the holy God? Th- th- there's real wisdom here for Israel. And they need someone. Someone like Moses, who they put forward, to go, on go, to, go to God on their behalf. A system is needed by which God could come before them without killing them, and they could come before God without being killed. And the solution comes in Exodus 25, where we read the Lord saying this. Again, notice the proactive stance of the Lord to, to be with his people. Don't miss that. It's not because Israel had it figured out. It's not because Israel was good enough. The Lord handpicks them, says, you're my personal treasure. Why? Because I said so. And he calls them out. In Exodus 25, we read this again. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. That God's solution to the distance between him and, and, and his people is to dwell in the midst of them in a tent, a, a, a fancy tent. Like, it's bigger than the tent you get at Mech, but it's a tent, uh, nonetheless. That's his solution. He will dwell in the midst, in the center of the camp with his people. And it's in this tent that priests, priests will act as the go-between between God and man, and man and God. It's here that sacrifices will be offered, prayers will be prayed. In fact, this tent, or its fancy name, tabernacle, This tent or or tabernacle will be the center, as we said, of the Israelite encampment. Everything will radiate around this tent, this dwelling. If you read in in, in Leviticus and the rest of Exodus, you you find that there's this graded holiness. That in the center of the camp is the most holy God. And then around him are those who serve him. And then around him are the other tribes of Israel. And then even beyond, further beyond that is, is, is the pagan world, the lost world. God's holy presence is in the midst of them. One scholar helpfully talks about the tabernacle like this. The tabernacle is God's embassy, wherein his local representatives function and where he describes himself as dwelling among his people. If you've ever been to to Ottawa before, uh, I went to the University of Ottawa for a year, uh, and I remember on my bus route, I would drive by all these foreign embassies and, and, and see them. And these foreign embassies, they exist as a little piece of that country, not entirely the same as it would back in their homeland, but as a little a piece of that country, even enjoying special protections in a, in a foreign land. 
In the same way, the tabernacle, this tent, is to be a little slice of heaven, a little piece of heaven on earth. This place from a foreign land that's come here where we can talk to one another, man and God and God and, and man. And it's here where priests would do their work of mediation, a work that includes representing God to us. But if we were to open our Bibles and we were to trace, uh, trace the, the priesthood through our Bibles and how it sort of developed over time and, and its high points and its low points, we would find some good priests. Absolutely. But, but on the whole, what, what we find is that the priesthood begins to take a bit of a nosedive. So much so that in Hosea 4, you can read this after. In Hosea 4, the prophet condemns Israel, condemns God's people for, for lack of knowledge of him. And, and the prophet says, whose fault is this? Whose fault is that you don't know about me and my laws and my ways? It's the priest's fault. We get to this point where essentially what's left of the priesthood by the time you get to Jesus' day is not this mediation led by faithful priests, but according to history, you can read this on the screen behind me, the higher levels of the priesthood in Jesus' time were populated with greedy, self-aggrandizing, and sexually immoral men. Rather than serving God, they were in fact serving themselves and desecrating the temple along the way. Here's this tent, this tabernacle, now a temple by Jesus' day, and they're supposed to be worshiping the living God there. And their mediators aren't up to the task. They can't do it. This is their description. We read this morning... In Hebrews 7.26, this. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Consider Jesus for, for, for a moment. At Advent, we celebrate the first coming of Jesus, our great high priest. And this is how Hebrews describes him. This is how Hebrews talks about him. Not, as we saw, a self-aggrandizing, sexually immoral, greedy man, but rather, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Nowhere else in our Bible talks about Jesus, our high priest, quite like Hebrews does. And so we're going to be all over Hebrews for the rest of our time this morning, but it's beautiful. And, and a key point of the argument of the author of Hebrews that he's making is that for Jesus to be this effective mediator, to be this effective go-between, he must completely and totally and entirely represent both parties. He's got to represent us, humanity, and represent God in fullness. If he's going to be an effective mediator, he has to be fully both. Again, we think mediator, and don't think like errand boy. Like, here's a message. Okay, here you go, guys. And okay, God, here you go. And like, okay. Like, don't think mediator in that sense. Think mediator as this powerful political figure, speaking authoritatively. And as the ambassador of God, we have to see Jesus was authorized. He comes with power and authority. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3, you saw this last week. What did, what did Heath show us? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is totally and fully and completely above any other mediator, be it priests or Moses or or angels, because he is totally and fully and completely God. And as God, the joy of Jesus is to bring God near to us. Now what does that mean? What does that mean? Each one of these points could be a whole sermon, but but I I won't preach a whole sermon on each one of these points. I want to show us three beautiful and amazing things. And the first is this. As God, Jesus perfectly shows us God. As God, Jesus perfectly shows us God. Uh, The priests in Hosea 4 led Israel to a point of unfaithfulness through their lack of teaching. The priests in Hosea 4 and throughout the ages failed to represent God accurately and often. But Jesus is the better high priest. He is the better high priest who not only teaches us God's law, but as you've been seeing throughout the Sermon on the Mount, right, he teaches us perfectly the law's true meaning. Indeed, he can say it's fulfilled in him. In Jesus we see, as we just read, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. In other words, Christ City, listen this morning. Do you want to know what God is like? I do. Look at Jesus. Do you want to know what God loves? What he delights in? Look at what Jesus loves. Do you want to know what God asks of us? Look at the commands of Jesus. I get that talking about Jesus as the best Christmas present is super cheesy. I get that. But it's also super true. As God, Jesus perfectly shows us God. Second thing, as God, only Jesus can offer himself as the better sacrifice. Our text read like this. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this, listen, once for all when he offered up himself. A few weeks ago, we we looked at King David. We saw how King David tried to offer himself as an atoning sacrifice for his sin, for the plague that was on Jerusalem. And we saw how David was ultimately unable, unable to offer himself as an acceptable atoning sacrifice. David's a transgressor. He, like you, are are part of, of the problem, like us. But in that moment of failure, David points ahead to a king who will act like a priest. See, these titles of prophet, priest, and king, they all sort of weave together. David points ahead to a king who will act like a priest in offering up not, not animals, but himself, his own life, his own body on the altar. David points to the priest king Jesus, Jesus who once for all time offers himself as a sacrifice for sin. And because Jesus is holy, Innocent, unstained, he is the better, truer sacrifice. Advent draws us, Advent has to draw us to the cross. 
the death of Jesus. The cross, where, 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 let me spell it out for us. Jesus goes up on that tree for our sin. In our place. It's what we sang this morning. Second thing, as God, Jesus alone can offer himself as the better sacrifice. Third thing is this. As God, Jesus' priesthood never ends. Again, our text read like this. Mariko said this. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But, but notice this. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Now, in the Old Testament, in the time of the Bible, uh, they would demarcate epochs, like demarcate periods of time by what high priest was ruling in that period. And so, so so-and-so was born during the high priesthood of so-and-so, right? Oh, that baby Jehoshaphat, right? So cute. When was he born? I think it was, I don't know. It wasn't Aaron. It was like three after Aaron, right? That's how they would tell time. Who was the high priest at the time, right? And that era would end when the high priest died. And the author of Hebrews knows that. And he's saying, listen, if our high priest never dies, what does that tell you about him? His priesthood goes on forever. We're living in his priesthood. We live right now, if we're in Christ, in his ministry. That's good news that Jesus is not dead. That's good news that his priestly ministry continues today. As God, Jesus' priesthood never ends. Now you might say, so what? So what? Those are all lofty theological ideas. So what? We have to remember that the work of a priest goes both ways. Yes, Jesus represents God to us, but Jesus also represents us to God. Us to God. We need Jesus to be fully God if he is to offer himself as an acceptable, once-for-all-time sacrifice on our behalf. But we need Jesus to be fully human if he's going to do all that work for us, for me, and for you. Hebrews 2, 14 to 17. I told you there was a lot of Hebrews this morning. Hebrews 2, 14 to 17 is music to our ears. Listen to this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, talking about Jesus, partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Indeed, if you're in Christ, you're in Abraham. John 8 tells us that. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. In every respect. Think about that for a second. Jesus' incarnation is not divine power with a meat suit on. It's not like like, like a, a sort of embodied Jesus. The author of Hebrews tells us that he became like his brothers, us, you and I, in every respect. Thinking and, and contemplating and crying and weeping, being confused, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
if the full and complete total godness of Jesus compels us to call him Lord and our God, then the full and complete and total humanity of Jesus, strange as it might sound, and it will sound strange, compels us to call Jesus brother. Brother. From this simple yet profound truth, the author of Hebrews uh, derives uh, endless encouragement, endless exhortation. But top of that list of exhortation, top of that list of encouragement, he says this, Jesus, our high priest, is fully human, so in him we can come near to God. Well, let me put it another way. Do you want to be near to God this morning? Who among us would say no? Do you want to be near to God this morning? Whether you've never followed Jesus before or you followed Jesus for a while and you're in a season of dryness, a season of distance. Do you want to be near to God this morning? What we see in, in the scriptures is that we ought then to stay close to Jesus. We ought then to abide in Jesus. And, and abiding is a two-way street. It goes from God to us. In abiding, we find God's strength to endure. In abiding, we find God's strength to love difficult people, and that's, that's very needed in the Christmas season. In abiding, we find his joy in the midst of, of, of suffering. But it also goes from us to God. In abiding, we trust that he hears our prayers, that what we're doing here this morning is not meaningless, that our singing our proclaiming, our going and our doing and our hoping and desiring is not meaningless. In abiding, we believe that we are not, not far outside the camp of God, but in Christ, we are whispering in God's very ear in the holy of holy. Now, I don't know how that does not drive you to prayer. Do we know what we have in prayer? Whispering in God's ear in the very holy of holies, clothed in the righteousness and the goodness and the obedience of, of Jesus Christ. Friends, everything changes, and that's not hyperbole. Everything changes when God comes near. Indeed, that is our third point. Jesus brings God near to us. Jesus brings us near to God, and how this changes everything. Uh, in his priestly ministry, we, we read this, Jesus accomplishes the task of total and complete salvation. Again, verse 25 of our text says this, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, the, the pastor of Hebrews uses the word uh, uttermost or, or complete, not just for rhetorical flair. Though this is a sermon, he's not just using it for rhetorical flair. He, he's using it with, with serious purpose. There's intention behind it. He's saying, in no uncertain terms, there is absolutely nothing that can stop, will stop, make incomplete, get in the way of Jesus' saving priestly work. There's nothing. He says, what does he say? He is able to save to the uttermost or complete those who draw near to God through him. Jesus' work as our high priest is sufficient. It is enough. 
And if you came in this morning and you had like 20-pound dumbbells on both of your shoulders, that should be good news to you. If you are weary this morning, that should be good news to you. See, the irony is we try to add to the finished work of Jesus all the time. All the time. Or we write it off altogether as being irrelevant, not, not for us. If we look at history, in place of Jesus' mediation, it has always been our impulse as people to try and represent ourselves before God. Or before the divine. Or, or something out there. To, to figure out another clever way to, to mediate that relationship. Think of Israel for a second. Moses is delayed up on the mountain, it says. And so the people, they grow antsy. Uh, they they want to, you know, m- make sure things are right. You know, uh, and they go to Aaron. What do they say to Aaron? Up, make us gods who shall go before us. We want to be sure. We should do it ourselves. Who knows what Moses will come down with? We might not like it. And so it is with us. We have a a modern temple system today. There might not be a physical temple in the middle of Vancouver, but we have, oh, we very much have a modern temple system today. And here's how it works. First, sin is, is culturally determined. We sort of decide by discussion and by think tanks what, what, what sin is. It's fluid. Uh, it's ever-changing. It, it, it's never the same. The sin of today is not necessarily the sin of, of tomorrow. But it's up to us to pay attention to our sacred texts. New York Times. Corporate policy. Social media. And once we observe the sacred text, then we can see which way the winds are blowing. And once sin has been diagnosed, once sin has been determined, there are a few ways to atone for sin. You know, it used to be enough, and, and Heath mentioned Oprah last week, and I, I apologize for men- mentioning Oprah two weeks in a row. But, 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 but it used to be enough to go on Oprah and cry. And if you went on Oprah and cried, that's enough, culturally speaking, to atone for your sin. It used to be enough. Now it's not. It's changed. The, the, the temple has changed. The gods are, are, are finicky. Instead, we, we, we have to do an apology on Twitter, and actually disappearing from public life altogether seems to do the trick. On and on and on and on the cycle goes in this modern temple system. We see this cycle, as, we, as I just described, in big public ways with celebrity sins, and we see it at work in small, nefarious little ways in our offices, our homes, uh, our schools, our hearts. We see it every time, a person overwhelmed with guilt and shame. Do you know about guilt and shame? Every time a person overwhelmed with guilt and shame, driven to despair, tries, like David, Even the best of us do this. Tries, like David, to atone for their own sin. And it is never enough. The game is always changing. We can never be quite sure. So unable to draw near to God on our own, we do two things. We we write him off altogether, or we work harder. And that's a personal favorite of mine. We just work harder. We just need to be better. 
unaware of whether or not the Father really looks down at us with approval, affirmation in Christ, we say, I got to do better. I got to do more. This is in all of our hearts. It's in my heart. It's in your heart. A few months ago, we had a, a woman come to our South Vancouver neighborhood building, an Eastern European woman. And after the gathering, she approached one of our pastors and she asked, where can I buy that bread? Where can I buy that bread? Looking to buy bread to atone for her sins. Looking to buy bread in case she died today, she would then be received, having eaten that bread, into heaven, in, in, into glory. Friends, can I, can I tell you what our pastoral staff told this woman just a few months ago? It is free. It is free. Come this morning, drink freely of the cup, eat freely of the bread, and enjoy Jesus. Enjoy Christ. It is free. It can't be bought. It cannot be summoned by carefully timed chants or, or ancient hallucinogenic potions. It can't be bartered, traded, or sold. You can't earn it. Nearness to God comes to us free of charge in Jesus. In Jesus. So you don't need to pretend any longer that nearness to God is unattainable. I think most of us, having felt this distance for some time now, have just sort of resigned ourselves to this distance. It's safe here. No smoke, no fire, no earthquakes, right? Understandable. We've resigned ourselves to this distance. But what if the Father's heart for you has always been that you would draw near to him? That you would know him? That you would not walk through this life at a distance, but walk through this life like Adam did with the Father in the beginning, with complete intimacy and joy. What if that's his heart for you? What if that's his longing for you? And you know what? In Jesus, we know that that's his heart for you. We know that that's his longing for you. Come to Jesus. We don't need to resign ourselves to participating in our modern temple any longer. We can burn it down. And this nearness cannot be bought. It is free in Jesus. It is free because Jesus does what we cannot do. Jesus goes where we cannot go. He is who, who we are not. I want to end this morning by reading another passage in Hebrews. I thought, not enough Hebrews this morning so far. It's only fitting that I leave you this morning with the same benediction that, that the pastor of Hebrews left to his readers. Hebrews 13, 20 to 21 says this. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, maybe you just want to close your eyes right now and hear these words, the inspired word of God. Hear it this morning, Christ City. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Would you stand with me as we respond this morning? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, 
please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.